What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. This year, we'll emerge from isolation and losses and remain undaunted in our desire to feel good and to even find joy. To that end, we've asked Jen Hutchison to talk with us today about her memoir, Motherling, A Walk. It's the story of the death of her firstborn son, Rafe, at age 31 in 2012, and about the walk she took on the Camino de Santiago to search for herself among the ruins a year later. Her Camino walk was 497 miles through tough Spanish terrain. That's about 800 kilometers. Motherling is raw and emotional, yet embracing her new identity and sprinkling ashes in places communicated by Rafe himself, it's also uplifting and refreshing. While we miss real hugs now, we send you a virtual one in Victoria, Australia. Welcome, Jen Hutchison. Well, hello, Diane. Thank you very much for that welcome. And hello from Melbourne. Oh, thank you. Um, My deepest condolences for the loss of your son. I don't think that ever gets old. And um, I just certainly just wanted to say that I feel for that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, there's no um, grief is a is a uh, is an abiding uh, part of the fabric of your life. Once this sort of tragedy hits you, uh, you step beyond your own imagination um, mm-hmm. and that comes with its own set of challenges and, and rewards, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, seeking, seeking peace and harmony through the challenges takes right. some time and a fair amount of effort. Some people make it and others uh, struggle. I think that um, we've lived vicariously through your walk and through your thoughts, so it is a kind of a guiding light on this continuum, um, you've created the term motherling as a contribution to our language, and it seems as though it were always there. It's a testimony to its usefulness and aptness. Uh, The word is a combination of endling um, and mother, and you say in motherling that it's a name I have invented in fair recognition of a woman who has lost a child. I wondered what you've achieved or even hoped to achieve with the term motherling. Has it united you and other motherlings, and how has that evolved? Uh, thank you. That's a, a lovely um, set of questions, and I'm going to give you a set of responses. This term motherling, uh, and I write about it in the book, came to me uh, really the first evening. I arrived in Pamplona. I'd, I'd flown directly from uh, Melbourne, Australia, really way too far to go, but I was very eager to get into this process of this long walk. And I, um, I arrived on a very balmy uh, autumn evening. I walked into the, uh, the, 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 um, the, the main 
uh, square and all I could see uh, were families joining together, meeting in the evening, in the gentle evening. And all I could see was mothers and sons. I'm sure there were a lot of other people there, but all I could all I could register were mothers and sons. And I was having a moment. The tears were flowing. I was just walking. Nobody came into my space. And um, and I just, this word came to me. I thought, it's not fair. I don't know. One of the big issues I had at that point was when people ask me, how many children do I have? Do I still say I have four? Do I really have four? Who am I when I don't have Rafe? Um, am I still Rafe's mother when there is no Rafe? Um, this this uh, this was a profound issue for me, and this word I thought we have foundling, we have orphan, mm-hmm. and we have widow and widower. We have identity, but we have no word to uh, to assist and support mothers who have gone through this profound loss. And this word motherling just came to me, and I thought, oh, well, I'm having that. Um, and then, then I came back to Australia. I, I didn't intend to write a book. I wasn't doing anything, uh, any of those things in order to write a book, but I ended up writing a book. And just before it went to publication, uh, and I had called it Motherling, uh, I thought, oh, I'd just better check. Um, and so I checked, and it turned out that this word was part of the English language in pre-Shakespearean times, and it means gorgeous mother or gorgeous mm-hmm. woman. Um, but gorgeous mother in particular, and it dropped out of the language. And I thought, oh, my goodness me, it made the hair on my arm stand up. You know, that this, this, this is a moment, one of those moments. There were so many moments like that on the Camino where somewhere in the ether something was delivered to my consciousness that I had not had access to previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, we have this, uh, Melbourne is a UNESCO um, world uh, city of liter- literature, and I applied to um, the, our, our, our writing centre had a, a, an initiative underway at that point to adopt a word, to try and save some words in the English language. So long story short, the, my little publishing company adopted that word and we are now the sponsor of the word motherling. Uh-huh. In terms of, um, so fair recognition, it's a great, a great term. And what has it achieved? Uh, I, it probably sounds naive now, Diane, but I, I really thought I had written a book about the Camino and it's mm-hmm. only since it's been published that I realise uh, from, the, from the feedback from so many women and, and a lot of men as well uh, about what I really wrote. There's such a common thing. It's quite a, I've got a wry smile on my face that writers find out what they've written uh, long after they think they finished. And I wrote a book about grief mm-hmm. and that's what resonates with, with readers. Uh, I, th- I think I have now more than 50 letters uh, saying thank you for being brave enough to talk about this because the world moves on, uh, mm-hmm. but mother's grief uh, is abiding. There, is, um, there are several poignant moments, and I thought also uplifting ones, upbeat ones. You talk about um, these uh, sensations of, you know, the hair standing on your arm and just knowing that something is right, retrieving a word. Who knew you could adopt a word? This is really enlightening. Um, And there is, um, you know, the sense in your book, uh, even Rafe and your other son um, have talked about it's here, meaning spirit. You arrive at a place, it looks like an ordinary place, and then suddenly you realize 
uh-uh, no, it's not. There's something else here or it has a different kind of vibe. Um, talk to us a little bit about was that a prevalent sensation on the Camino? Do you think it was heightened by your grief and your rawness, your openness? Uh, yes and no. <clears throat> I didn't set out to have a spiritual walk. I set out to save my own life, really. Um, I, had, I was in a pit of grief, uh, as you would expect, and I didn't, I had done grief counselling and I, um, uh, there's a very, I, I presume in the United States as well, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's um, book on grief and the five sure. stages of grief Grief is renowned through the decades, and uh, I, it's the only book I've ever thrown across the room. Uh, I was because I, how can you put the stages of grief? I mean, I understand with respect that that she needed to put that in on down in that way, but for a for the a parent who's lost a child, those those emotions, uh, those desperate emotions, can all arrive in a blink. Um, so I, I was really trying to find a way to make sense of what had happened in my life uh, in a way that had been so unexpected uh, and so not the way I planned uh, my life or the, or, or the expectations I had for my children's lives. And, and so I was walking to make sense of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that energy, I, I'm not... I'm not a religious, particularly religious person. I don't belong to a church. I consider myself very connected to the earth and its spirituality. But I, I, didn't, I, I couldn't have said that with this, this level of awareness before just going for a long walk. It's a, walking is an amazing form of continued meditation. And so that energy, I mean, I would set out walking every morning at 7.30 or 8.30, whatever time I was out, uh, depending on the weather and how well I'd slept. Uh, there was no particular program except to walk every day. I'd choose a distance. But I was more more often thinking about how much my feet hurt or mm-hmm. whether my backpack was rubbing my shoulder or what was that twinge in my hip uh, than, and, and look at the autumn leaves and how lovely the sunshine is and, oh, there's a bit of frost in there. I was so connected to the earth that when these moments, the it's here moments arrived I was often sort of stunned to stillness mm-hmm. uh, because I wasn't expecting but I did have this it, it, I had this um, I'm sort of waving my hands here at one at my left shoulder uh, there was this presence and it was my son's energy and he would talk to me in silence in my head we would have conversations in silence but I was not in control of when that happened I had no conscious control I was just walking uh, so th- that energy I, I learnt to respect as a gift mm-hmm. uh, and I've written quite extensively in the book about what those conversations were and, that's, and, and thank you for picking up on the humour and the lightness. My, my, um, you know, I was the fifth of six children and my, my mother couldn't always remember us as newborns but she used to look at me and say, oh, I remember you, darling, you were born smiling. <laughs> my my reset position is serendipitously enthusiastic about life and I had lost that and I found somewhere along that 800 kilometres that, that serendipitous sense of wonder mm-hmm. uh, re-emerged uh, well, and a- it, it was there through these experiences. 
it arrived through these experiences. Like portals. I, I think that, um, well, congratulations for throwing the book across the room, because honestly, I don't <laughs> see how you can really endure first the experience without being tremendously anger, angry at some level. Mm-hmm. And also, um, you know, it does feel patronizing, right, when there's categories uh, pressed upon you and you're supposed to graduate from category to category in a linear fashion and it's all very three-dimensional and you keep circling back to stages where you were before and really those labels are pretty useless. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's, it's very real, I think, what you're saying and, and obviously keeping it real with you know, the, the sandal difficulties and the shoe difficulties and the toe difficulties. I mean, I think, yeah, just managing the survival of this walk. Um, the history of the Camino de Santiago starts in the ninth century when Catholic and Islamic forces were battling to control the Iberian Peninsula. Um, the area became a pilgrimage destination for Catholics who believed the Apostle St. James was buried there. So mm-hmm. at that point, most pilgrims traveled on foot or in donkey carts. Um, there's a hilarious scene in the Martin Sheen movie, The Way, um, where, you know, they find out that you can go on a card and or, you know, an ATV or, and, you know, the, the guy is just saying, why are we walking, you know? Um, but it, it is, it is um, a test. It's a test in many, many di- dimensions, I would say. Um, and I wondered if you felt that there is a history, um, because in, in the way uh, he, Martin Sheen does go um, and complete the Camino as his son who passed away uh, intended to do. And I wondered if you felt that there is a history of healing and loss associated with the Camino de Santiago? Oh, I think almost certainly. Um, and that's a great summary of how this all started. Uh, you know, the, the, the politics of that, uh, of those two forces, Islam in, and Christianity, uh, created a competition for the ownership of, of a pilgrimage pathway, which had been there since, um, since pagan times. Uh, And so what has happened through the ages is that it attracted the the sense of pilgrimage already existed before this pathway was became a a sort of collective property of the Catholic Church. There are beautiful churches all the way along. Um, In in the way, in in the movie, uh, Martin Sheen picks up on what is a very common theme. I would walk on a pathway between beautiful medieval villages and there's all along the pathway there's a medieval village every 5, 10 or maximum 15 kilometres, most of them still completely committed to pilgrims and the pilgrimage. So the overarching commitment of walkers still remains those who are on a personal search of some sort and at every point along the way, at many, many points, but certainly at the kilometre markers, which have been there since Roman times, you would find little piles of stone, a note of paper um, with with a rock on top of it, with somebody's commitment to themselves or to a com- in commemoration mm-hmm. uh, to somebody they have lost. So there, there is a lot of energy of reset, of, of internal examination. Martin Sheen's characterization of a man who was a grumpy old grumpy old devil who really didn't have his eyes or ears open taking on this role of finishing what his son had started 
is not uncommon at all. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a movie that I've now watched a number of times uh, and it, it inspired me at the mm-hmm. beginning. I, I didn't know anything about it um, and I was in a, a pit of grief and somebody said, have you seen that movie? I watched it. I watched it again. I, um, I then realised that I, had, I did have a memory of the, that um, Camino de Santiago from Rafe. And I ended, uh, I came to a point fairly quickly of thinking, well, what a good idea. I wonder if I could do that. Would I be brave enough, first of all? Do I have the courage to do that? Um, Would I need to have somebody with me? And I needed to answer all those questions before I took the first step. Mm -hmm. You were a woman alone, um, a a peregrina, um, which is, uh, you know, the term for pilgrim that's in all of us. And there are many people for many different reasons who um, go on the Camino and I think also are trying to regain some sense of self-mastery by putting one foot in front of another and accomplishing certain distances when all form of control over one's life and all sense of one's identity has flown out the window. So it is very much um, a place for the pilgrim and all of us, for those of us that are trying to pick up the pieces and put things back together again. And it's really um, a place that I think because it has this well-worn tradition of people doing this very thing, I wonder if it hasn't even accumulated in that direction, um, that it becomes a place to rebuild. Uh, We have just a few seconds left, and um, then we're going to take a commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to talk to Jen Hutchison, who set out on your very own, Jen. Really, I am just in awe. Um, your fears, your, your challenges, we want to hear about them all. But first, we're going to take a break and don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're dropping in with Jen Hutchison, author of Motherling, A Walk. Jen, what an exquisite um, journey. What a wonderful tribute to your son. The book is really um, an eye-opener in and of itself. And I just realized um, 
in another synchronicity, I had, um, I'm, I'm sitting here in Switzerland where I'm not often, and um, I picked up an old book of poetry by David White called Pilgrim. And oddly enough, it's dated 2012, which is sadly the year of your son's death. Um, I just want to also point out that the the Camino, um, which is the subject of David White's first section of this book, um, it is something ubiquitous. There is something ethereal. And um, if you don't mind, I'm just going to quote actually from Camino because now it seems so apt. He writes, um, but your loss brought you here to walk under one name and one name only and to find the guise under which all lost can live. Remember, you were given that name every day. Along the way, remember, you were greeted as such and you needed no other name. Other people seemed to know you even before you gave up, being a shadow on the road and came into the light, even before you sat down with them, broke bread and drank wine, wiped the wind tears from your eyes. Pilgrim, they called you again. Pilgrim. Oh, that makes me want to cry. That is well, so true. <laughs> so true, right? You, yeah, you, and you profound. Were the, you were the Peregrina and you were greeted as such. It was oh, yes. Buen Camino Peregrina. And that identifies you as someone who you'd never been before. How did that alter your sense of yourself? Uh, at different times with incredible humility and gratitude uh, and never in a grating way. Um, I, I came away from the Camino with immense and profound uh, respect for this the Spanish and their tradition along the, pilg- uh, the pilgrimage. Uh, and there are various pathways of the all called Camino de Santiago. And the one I walked was called the Francais, the French way, uh, which, which uh, starts in, in the southern part of France, goes through the Pyrenees and then to Pamplona and across uh, to Santiago. The Spaniards for now, all of those centuries have taken care of pilgrims. So there are businesses, many, many businesses, pensions and restaurants and bars and cafes where there must be now 30 or 40 generations of the same family uh, mm-hmm. who, who are committed to supporting and caring for, for pilgrims. So um, David White absolutely nailed it when uh, you you have an identity which is respected and supportive before you begin to call yourself that. I can remember very clearly thinking on the first day, I am a pilgrim and here I am. I am a pilgrim. I am finally a pilgrim. I had no idea what I was saying to myself, but there was a sensation of entity. And there were a number of times uh, along um, the Camino when I would take, uh, because I was so absent-minded, so lost within my own thoughts, uh, in two two situations, I walked the wrong way. I took, there was a fork in the path and I walked the wrong way. And in each of those cases, uh, in the first case, a man had uh, come into a car park above me. He'd driven past me and then moved into a car park on a sort of a, a, a terrace above me and call, and walked to the edge of the terrace and said, in English, uh, are you a pilgrim? And I said, yes, I am. He said, well, you're on the wrong path. You have to go back to the roundabout and mm-hmm. take. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's so, this was a man. It was a gas plant. Mm-hmm. But he, an ordinary citizen, understood that this national pride and this care. 
Mm-hmm. And the second one, uh, second time in an ancient village, there was a, a cobbled um, pathway with a, a cobbled split in the pathway with a building in between. And I was wandering along and walked uh, walk the wrong way. And within 20 metres, there, there was an old crone leaning in a, in a cobblestone pa- doorway and she, yeah, Peregrina, Peregrina. <laughs> and I turned around and she gestured with her hand, her toothless mouth, the whole, it was wonderful, and, and pointed me in the other direction. And I smiled and n- nodded and said, you know, thank you and walked the other way. This is, this is who you are. It defines you. It defines your environment. And I did not, as a woman alone, uh, I started off thinking, uh, look, I'm, you know, I'm a woman of a certain age uh, and I'm nearly six foot tall. You'd have to be pretty. I did all those. I had all those urban myths in my mind. You'd have to be really determined to take me on. I'll just be okay. I'll be, oh, I'll be okay. And, of course, once I began walking, this sensation of support, which I had been totally unaware of, of, of this nurturing sense of, timelessness of what I was doing mm-hmm. uh, also mirrored in some of the people I met. And, of course, there were lessons for me to learn in some mm-hmm. of the people I met and walked with for short periods of both, both things I needed to learn that uh, were confronting and things that I found very comforting. This, when you open your mind, uh, a lot comes in. Right. And, you know, it's ancient, um, not just the pathway, but maybe the pathway, <laughs> the abstract pathway. Yes. And, and yes. I, yes, I, I think this concept of aloneness versus support um, is essential because when you experience the, the death of a loved one um, so close to you, there is nothing but aloneness. There is nothing mm. but mm. the sense of um your grief belonging so innermost to you. And I think that that I wondered if that embrace that you were in, the that that supportive network of, yeah, innkeepers, people who are going to commercially um, profit from your presence, but also that spirit of, of communally helping one another on the path. I wondered if it changed the narrative in your head a little bit because I, I wondered, I think, you know, it, at some point you felt maybe the universe was slightly against you uh, for losing your son. I mean, that's a horribly unfair thing and b- both for him and you. And I wondered if it changed some of the narrative to, to or rearrange some of it. You didn't always have a present husband. You were going it alone a lot of the way, figuratively, literally. Did it change anything in your view, your worldview? Yes, fundamentally and, uh, and an essential difference. It, it, you, I think you've, you know, you've mentioned half a dozen uh, elements of character that, uh, that you take with you. In, on, a, on a walk like this and some of them are the things you know about yourself and some of the things are some of them are things that you're totally confused by uh, one of is the gap uh, what do you do with the gap and the identity where who are you now this has happened how do you how do you reference the world when the this is my firstborn this is the reference point in my in the most fundamental change in a woman's life is that birth of her first child and Rafe was 31 I was 
I was at the beginning of the Camino completely unable to see what I can what I could see by the end that 31 years with this amazing human being was a gift mm-hmm. the lot all I could focus on at the beginning was the burden of loss and how I could how could I live through this I'd never been suicidal it's not part of my nature but I couldn't work out what to do who I was uh, and like a lot of women I had been daughter, uh, sister, uh, bride, wife, uh, and and then mother. Uh, I grew up in a big family. I'd been surrounded by supportive relationships or not, uh, depending on what the circumstance was. And I, But I didn't know who I was when I'd like that song. I'd been to paradise, but I'd never been to me. Um, and I, I needed one of the things I just had this instinct at the beginning was I need to know who I am in the in the light of all of these characteristics. And I'd had no idea when I started walking. All I knew was that as an urban myth, I'm, I'm you know, I'm 60, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm six foot tall, I'll be okay. I know what to do and I have a credit card, you know, so my relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not, what can I'm go not, wrong? Absolutely. I just thought um, I've got my cell phone and, and my credit card, and if anything goes wrong, I'll just throw money at it until it goes away, <laughs> which is, you know, it, so I wasn't, I didn't go with a backpacker's uh, profile. Mm-hmm. I would walk into a little village and find I needed aloneness. Uh, mm-hmm. I did not feel lonely. I needed, I didn't want to sleep uh, in a room full of backpackers or, you know, the sprinters, I would call them, people who are out for a long walk doing it as for a physical or walking in groups, having a jolly time. I mean, I have huge respect. You do whatever you, whatever you need to do in the Camino and there are all sorts of, but I needed aloneness and I would walk into a village and look for a small family hotel or a pension uh, and and knock on the door and ask, and I, I tried as often as, as possible and achieved it, uh, a private room. Uh, but as a peregrina, I was treated with enormous respect um, in that sense, um, and people would just, you know, pat me on the shoulder. I sometimes mm-hmm. walked for hours in tears, not really knowing why, just because mm-hmm. whatever came next came next. And people would, pilgrims would pass me, uh, and uh, and just you know raise a thumb to me and with a questioning look on their face. Are you okay? And I would nod and say I'm okay. Enormous mm-hmm. interpersonal respect, pilgrim to pilgrim, as well as pilgrim to community. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that that I think that's an environment where whatever needs to happen to you will happen to you in some form. You're not in control. You have to give yourself up. I felt, for me, I just had to give myself up to whatever came, Mm -hmm. as painful or as delightful. Well, there is enormous respect for you for undergoing the process of being open and you found also a respect for your privacy, which I think is huge because, yes, interconnectivity is a wonderful thing, not if you don't want it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you spoke about the gap and most of us, you know, associate, I think in a cliche way, um, that a death with an absence, but you beautifully wrote and I think brilliantly wrote about the gap being not goneness, but ungoneness. Rafe, it, it's the email that doesn't arrive. It's the phone call that doesn't happen. And then that, that's almost a palpable 
ungoneness. There's a palpable gap, um, kind of like the gap that you stepped into, which was the, the unknown. Um, I, I also wondered if, to some extent, you stepped away because you were experiencing respect as a pilgrim, you also stepped away um, from some of the self-recrimination. Rafe, um, sadly, he did not die of, of a disease or something that was, you know, it was something that you could associate in, in a sense because it was behavioral. He had been... Um, this is the, the oxymoron of the century, but he had been using recreational drugs and there had been a relapse and there were some, um, you know, just with tragic results. Um, and I think then a mother, it's not like saying, okay, he contracted sepsis. I had nothing, you know, I, he contracted a disease out of the blue. He had a heart attack. You know, you didn't really know any of that. And unfortunately, in those absences, sometimes we fill in the blanks with the most dire and negative thoughts. I wonder if you started to rebuild yourself from the respect that you were attaining and also started to cut yourself some slack and and start to say, you know, you, you came to a point where you said, I did the best I could. Rafe did the best he could. Um, did you feel yourself stepping away from judgment? Um, look, I just want to commend you, Diane, for your fabulous summaries. <clears throat> you've, um, you've got a remarkable mindset and, and a great way of interpreting, uh, and I can't fault Thanks. what you've said. Um, yeah, the, the oxymoron, is, which is the debate of the century, uh, the, the, the dis- discussion debate and the litigation around what we now know and have a name for opiate layering. Um, Opiate layering is something that had not been coined in 2012. And so Rafe was a highly successful on all measures, any measure in our Western economy, highly educated, fabulous looking, um, living the life uh, as an index trader in Hong Kong, uh, a great career in applied finance uh, and had succumbed to cocaine, the drug of recreation. We brought him back to Australia. We packed a lot of support around him and for about three months he was okay. So it was shock after shock after shock. And then in the space of, of uh, between 8 p.m. and 8 a.m. one night, he, he was gone, didn't know, didn't understand how that could happen. Now know uh, that that was... Um, prescription drugs that he had been given by three different doctors, not because he requested them, but because they were all responsible, they were each responsible for part of his uh, his support. But what he hadn't been taught was that each of those had an opiate resi- uh, resi- uh, residual and would layer in his system if he used mm-hmm. them progressively. Uh, and and so that it's it's sort of like a train train wreck. You, everything stops. You, interpretation, I mean, there's no way. Uh, I'm, I, I am all of those things too, highly educated and urbane and so and articulate and so on, and I couldn't explain, I couldn't understand it. I can now summarise it. Uh, but we didn't have that information. We didn't understand what it meant. Um, so, so the ungoneness uh, mm-hmm. is, is the outcome of all of the 
years really of re-examining as new information came to light and understanding that I could live with this, uh, that there had to be. I didn't know what the way was to live with this. Uh, and I still have days where, uh, you know, where the ungoneness is a spectre that threatens to knock me off my perch. Uh, mm-hmm. But I have many more days uh, where I, the joy of life and the, and the pride to have had this beautiful human being for 31 years um, is and, and the, all the rascally things he did and the amazing, you know, the, the contact I still have with his, with his friends and his network and so on. I'm no longer living his, trying to interpret his life. Mm-hmm. I am now, I now have a positive, proud, proud legacy uh, of, the, of the first of my four children. Yes. And three other beautiful children who are yes. doing fine and I owed it to them to make the effort. I agree. And I think that um, the wonderful aspect of this to me is this forward movement of the positive and the gift, the way in which appreciating someone's life really does do them justice. And, you know, the rest, it, it does have to fall away some days better than others. But um, you've done a remarkable job and you've done a lot of hard work and heavy lifting to get where you are. We um, have to take another break and we will talk again about the pressures on young people's lives, also on all of our lives to fulfill expectations, how we feel like failures sometimes when we don't and whether any of that is appropriate in the first place. Don't go away. We'll come back with Jen Hutchison on Dropping In. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com That's Diane at DianeDewey.com Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Jen Hutchison having a tender and touching conversation about the death of her firstborn child, one of four. And Jen, I think, has remarkably found the nuggets within this experience. And one of them is the creation of a book called Motherling, 
a walk in which, Jen, you embody, I think, your experience and the strength of your experience um, in a way that actually is contributory to other people's healing. You write, the death of a child in any age for any reason creates a living hell for a mother. I have to think that many mothers, um, particularly of other generations, experienced this pain, perhaps behind closed doors, with the thought of having to carry on for maybe even younger ones who might have still been at home or fulfilling roles um, as, such as wife, you know, work, work associate. Um, you were working at the time and you talked about how work actually helped distract you from some of the pain. Um, and I wondered if, you know, as I mentioned before the break, you know, we feel, we just feel like a failure if we haven't really accomplished any of our roles, whatever we've assigned ourselves. Um, you know, some of that is so self-attributed and so much of that pressure is so much self-attributed. Uh, the pressures that young people are under, the pressures that we're under. You talk about mistress, mistress grief um, as a competition for control. She gains the upper hand sometimes. And I wondered how these battles um, for control versus maybe befriending the loss of control that we really have sometimes, how those balances have played out in your life since since all of this took place? Yes, interesting, um, interesting uh, lid, uh, lift the lid a little on Pandora's box. I, I, I find myself now, um, I talk about motherling uh, and this journey through grief and with grief uh, a lot now and talk to groups of people on request uh, and talk about the book quite a lot. I've I found myself from the beginning of this journey up to now trying to help other people to avoid the word failure. Uh, I know I fell into that trap myself. I felt like a complete failure. I mean, how you can't avoid that to a certain extent as a mother. This is a heartbeat from your own heartbeat. You've mm-hmm. carried this. You've nurtured it. You've taught it. You've taught this individual his values and. And you expected them to be applied in a certain way and some, some element, some rogue element in personality and uh, genetic makeup, whatever it is, has thrown him and this whole relationship off, off guard and then destroyed it or redefined it in ways that you have no prior experience of. So it's quite natural to apply our society's sense of self and call yourself a failure, and this is a complete failure. Uh, but I, I now know, and I know it. I just, I know it from the fundamental part of myself, and I try to help other motherlings to understand this is not failure. There is no failure. There is for yourself only peace or not peace, and that's closely linked with that sense of what your attitude is to alone, uh, and what your attitude is to that goneness. Uh, and it's that attitude that is deserving of your attention. What What's going to be, who, who am I in this situation? I know who I I was so secure in what I was as a mother uh, to this individual. Who am I when that relationship has, has to exist in another space 
around which I have no experience? How am I going to build that experience? And who am I going to decide? Because it's an, it's an empty page. It's a blank page. You can, we all know people who have lost children um, and, and the stats are pretty awful. I mean, 85% of marriages fail after the loss of a child. You can join that. You can, you can go with that trend and nobody will stop you or know how to stop you. It's only you and the person in the mirror or you if you're on a pilgrimage and the person driving those feet one step after the other, leaving your mind to search what peace means for you and, and peace is not an absolute. It's nobody can ever find it forever or we'd all sit meditating all day every day. Uh, because walking is a form of meditation. But it's where it's going to fit into you and how it's going to expand to to influence the way you are going to be in the world, in your immediate world with the relationships in your family and in the world beyond, in your relationships with work. Um, so that this is this is what I try to to help people understand. Uh, and I do find that motherlings know what I'm talking about. Um, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, I think most people uh, of a certain age know loss in some form and also know that in the hierarchy of loss, it's a terrible thing to say this, but, but there is a hierarchy of loss and losing a child is right up there, right up the top. We are not adequate as humans to understand or manage it. Uh, or help um, so but but I try to help motherlings and fatherlings um, to to help themselves as much as they can you know I'm glad that you mentioned fatherlings I I do um, you, you noticed that the, um, the female thing the drive to rescue and repair of mm. course you you and your family were involved in the rescue and repair of your son and um, that that instinct to fix it to fix it mm. and then also to be fixed to have everything mm. be instantaneously within our grasp and within our control it's so futile in in so many ways because yes we are not <laughs> we're not the influencers we think we are and and that's probably for the best um but i i also think you know we're all independently on our own caminos and we're all you know driving ourselves and I think that that's also a way to find peace where you are talking to people about choosing identity and your relationships their success is the choice and it it is I think agency you're giving people agency like you gained agency once again in your own life and I think um, you know, it's a spectrum. I wondered about there. There were times it seemed when you actually had shut down, and this is a very beautiful aspect of personality. I think where the the psyche shuts down because it has to protect itself while it's mm. mulling over, while it's churning, while mm. it's inchoate, um, and then you've emerged in you know you've put words to this you now have a publishing company um you know journey towards publishing that process it's all of a piece is it not for you yes most definitely um 
uh, I've been a journaler all my life and I, I still have the journals that I started creating when I was about 15. Um, it's just sort of a bit funny to meet your 15-year-old self uh, from time to time. And I had uh, at, at Rafe's funeral a very dear writing friend had given me a little leather book and said, let's call this your, your, your grief diary because surely in the days ahead, I know you, Jen, her name is Betty O'Neill, and she said, I know you, Jen, you're going to need to write to write this out of your heart. And I did. Um, and, and so then 15 months later, I walked to Camino and I journaled every day and every one of those little places where that spirit took me and I left a tiny sachet of, of Rafe's ashes and a commemorative note on, and a stone, I wrote, I journaled. Uh, so that my children, my other children, would be able to find those places if, because they're not, they're not official places. Um, and some of the directions are, you know, three steps past the big tree, beyond the fence, over the stile, et cetera, et cetera. They're quite, they're quite interesting now to look at them. When I came back, I had no intention to write a book, but I looked at these two journals when I, another two, a couple of years down the track and thought, I wonder what would happen if you threaded, if I threaded these two together. And so that's how motherling, and, and I wrote a book about the Camino because I, I was so affected by how profoundly it had changed my perspective and my ability to cope on so many different levels. Uh, uh, I thought I'll, I'll write a book about the Camino and I'll include this visceral material uh, from, from the grief diary, uh, selections from it, so that other people can see how effective a Camino could be. Um, and, and so uh, that sort of, that when I got to, to that and it came time to publish the book, uh, I'm an economist by training. I had begun to, I'd done a lot of writing courses and I'd begun to have a look at the publishing industry and I could see that mature age writers really struggled to find a place in the mainstream publishing industry. That's not a criticism. That is just a description of their, of their business model. And I thought, being the serendipitous person I am, well, that's not a challenge. That's an opportunity. Why don't I, um, why don't I, learn how to make books and 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 publish the works of mature age writers? So I I began a masters of publishing and writing at one of the universities here, the finest in the country for this work, uh, and I learned how to make books. And then decided, well, I better I better publish. I know the heart and soul that goes into a book. I'd better publish my book first. Uh, I had written another book. I showed it to some industry experts and they said, no, 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 you go with Motherling first. You go with that one. That's, mm-hmm. that's the message. And so I did. I, I didn't want to mess up. Make, I mean, when you do something like that for the first time, there'll be all sorts of mistakes. I thought I don't want to do that with another writer's heart and soul. I'll do it with Motherling because it can't, it can't hurt me. Uh, and so we went first with Motherling and we've now got eight books. We've got another six or seven scheduled for this year. I mean, these unusual times with COVID uh, plans have gone out the window and come back in the window and out the window again and so on. But this is the commitment. We publish the works of mature age writers. We, and there are many, many of us uh, of a certain age who have had careers elsewhere. So mm-hmm. I'm, it is very fulfilling. 
You can be proud. It's really thrilling for all of us um, to witness it. I know that in times of COVID and um, that we can't take anything for granted. You've pointed that out. And it's a wonderful takeaway. You can't take anything for granted. Really live in the moment. Um, I, I remember Betty from your book. I mean, and she's hysterical. You're in the grocery store breaking down. And, <laughs> and she says, it's, it is amazing, the cruelty to breakfast foods. And there is spirituality to laugh. And I, um, I just noticed we have only a couple of moments left, and I'm so sorry, time. We don't know how much of it there is, but now we do. Um, you had an intuition from Rafe to go to Finisterre um, by the sea, and you did it. You had um, an offer to do so right away. And I'm going to just read from Finisterre one passage from David White. Because now you would find a different way to tread, and because through it all, part of you could still walk on, no matter how, over the waves. That you, Jan, have overcome so many challenges, and I think are still evolving with um, more wisdom to share. We just really very much appreciate that you shared it with us today, and that you um, went on your intuitions and your synchronicities it's just been an amazing journey and we'll follow you again um, through your Instagram and Facebook um, at Journeys to Words Publishing and also at your website and um, thrilled to have you adding voices to your own very meaningful voice. Um, in the end, we are all on our, Camino, our own Camino and figuring out what matters. So, Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and mostly to you, our listeners. Be safe, everyone out there. And remember, you are peregrinos and most of all, Buen Camino. Thanks, Jen Hutchison. Thank you, Diane. It's been a joy and we look forward to more from you. Till next week, thanks for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.